All right, good afternoon and welcome to our Sabbath service where we're going to be dealing with the crumbs of Torah, which is what I call um, our uh, Torah commentary for this week, on the Torah portion called Teruma. Teruma means contributions, and it's voluntary contributions in order to uh, uh, make the furnishings of the tabernacle, all of the holy furniture, uh, also the, you know, the, the, the structure of the tabernacle itself, the posts, the pegs, the ropes, the, 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 the skins, the, the screens, the veils, all that kind of stuff. And that's what Teruma is all about. Normally, it would be a very dry Torah commentary because it's just a bunch of measurements, facts, and figures, but we always know there's something more deeper and more spiritual behind all those measurements and all the uh, materials that are used, the bronze, the gold, the silver, the, you know, blue, purple, scarlet yarn, etc. So we're going to just focus in on maybe a little <clears throat> bit of those things. It's taken from Exodus chapter 25 verse 1 and goes all the way to chapter 27 verse 19. So before we get started, let's open with the blessing of the Torah. Baruch Adonai Hamvarak Baruch Adonai Hamvarak Leolam Vayed Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Bacharbanu Michol HaAmim V'neten Lanu Et Torato Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has selected us from all peoples and gave us his Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Psalm 119.18 says, Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your Torah. So today I want to take you to Exodus chapter 25. And uh, we're going to be beginning with uh, verse 8 of Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. So it says, this is the Lord speaking to Moses, giving him instructions to give to the people. And the Lord said, Have them, have the children of Israel make a sanctuary for me. Have them make a sanctuary for me. Why? So that I can dwell among them. You are to make it all precisely according to everything that I show you. The patterns. That word pattern kind of makes you think of symbolism. That it's just not some arbitrary blueprints just because it has architectural aesthetics to it. But there's meaning and purpose behind every measurement, every cubit, every material that's used. So he says, in other words, let them make a tabernacle for me. Let them give out of the resources and things that they have. And people say, well, where'd they get all this stuff? Two places. They got it when they plundered the Egyptians when they left. Moses said, go ask your neighbor for, for whatever you want. And so this is when their firstborn were dying. So they're like, yeah, sure, take whatever you want, get out of here before more of us die. So they plundered the Egyptians. Second of all, they had the battle with the Amalekites, Amalek. And so when I'm sure when they beat Amalek, they went into the Amalek camp and plundered all the things that they had. Maybe Amalek just got done with a battle, battling somebody else and plundering somebody else. So they had all this gold, this silver, all these materials. And, and then there's a legend about, you know, where'd they get the wood? There's no wood in the desert. But according to rabbinic tradition, Jacob foresaw what was going to happen, and the Lord instructed him to plant a forest. And, uh, and um, once this forest grew, before they left Egypt, they were to cut all the, the trees down and take it with them. They took a lot of stuff with them out of Egypt. They took the plunder from the Egyptians. If that legend is true, they took all the lumber, the trees that Jacob had planted, if that indeed is a true story. And they took the bones of the patriarchs, specifically the bones of Joseph. They were carrying a coffin with them through the desert with a mummy in it. 
with Joseph. So they carried all these things. That's where they got the materials to build the tabernacle. So it says, have them make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. You are to make it precisely. You know, and, and oh, man, this bugs me. People say, well, I just follow the, the unction of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's great. But if the unction of the Holy Spirit is telling you to do something wacky, not according to the word of God, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's another spirit. Because Paul said everything must be done in decency and in order. So no matter what the Lord is having you to do, whether it be prophesy, whether it be speak in tongues, it's going to be decent. It's going to be in order. It's not going to be something that's going to be contradictory to his word. There's going to be a reason and rhyme behind it. So it says you are to make it precisely. God is a precise God. When he gave us his calendar in Leviticus chapter 23, he said, these are my appointed times, my Moedim, specific times. It starts at this specific time, ends at this specific time. I will meet with you here and I will do this. So it says, make it precisely according to everything that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the furnishings within, just so you must make it. And uh, verse 22 of that same chapter says, I will meet with you there. Now, this is talking about the, the Ark of the Covenant, which I want to touch on just briefly. I will meet with you there. I will speak with you from above the atonement cover, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, about all that I command you to do for B'nai Israel, for the children of Israel. So, I learned something new about the Ark of the Covenant. We know that it was a, it was a, a wooden box overlaid with gold. So we just think that it was covered inside and out with gold. But according to the, uh, the biblical and uh, Jewish commentaries, I think Rashi says that there the were actually three boxes that were made. There was a gold box. Inside that gold box was the wooden box. And inside that wooden box was another gold box. Therefore, it was covered and lined with gold inside and out. So if that's three boxes, the Ark of the Covenant represents God's throne on earth. And it alludes to the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, gold, God the Son, wood, because it's earthly, it's human. There's, there's that human aspect to Yeshua. Then there's the Holy Spirit, another layer of gold, divinity. So, you know, the rabbis wouldn't admit to that, but that's what I see in that. And then the lid, the art cover, is one ingot of gold, which amazes me because I'd like to see when I get to heaven, I want to say, Lord, show me the guy that hammered out this art cover. Because he must have had some pretty big muscles or a pretty big hammer because this art cover, the lid was one piece of gold. It had a crown around it, and then it wasn't soldered on or welded on. From that lid came two keravim that, that was on the edge of the ark, and their wings made a canopy over the ark. And, and in between that is where the glory of God, the Shekinah, the presence of God, dwelt and spoke and communicated with Moses and communicated to the, the priests of Israel. And so that's, that, that amazes me. So this is God's throne. Now, this is one thing that I was thinking about. I have no way to prove this, but I'll tell you what the, the, the rabbis and sages say. They say that the, the Ark of the Covenant, that the Kerubim or the Cherubim on the Ark, that they had faces like children. And they were facing each other. One was male, one was female. How they know this, I don't know. But I believe that through their captivity in Babylon, that there's a lot of commentary that may have been jaded by maybe some Babylonian influence. Because, you know, when we think of a cherub, we think of the Greek-Roman uh, god uh, Cupid, and we think of the little fat babies with wings. That's not what a cherub was or a cherub was. A cherub was a fearsome creature. 
a fearsome heavenly creature that 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 elicited fear and and caused people to faint on the spot so i don't know about you i'm not afraid of a baby face that's not going to elicit fear inside me and i don't think you know that that these these cherubim on the ark was just these feminine baby like cute little things every time cherubim was mentioned now there's cherubim and seraphim and as best as i can find out the only difference is the number of wings they have where the seraphim have six wings the cherubim have four so both of these cherubim and seraphim have more than one face ezekiel talks about it and other prophets talk about it it's it's talked about in revelation the four living creatures represent these four faces that ezekiel saw one of a man one of a lion one of an ox one of an eagle Nobody has ever seen the Ark of the Covenant. Nobody alive today has ever seen the Ark of the Covenant. So it makes me think, what does these cherubim, cherubim really look like? Now, the cherubim was also woven into the curtains of the tabernacle. And when you see models of these, they look like the, uh, the Lamassu of the Persian Empire. The Lamassu were the throne guardians. They had the body of a bull. Um, they had the, the face of a human. Uh, wait, I'm getting this wrong. Hang on a second. Anyways, they were these four living creatures, a composite. I think that they had the body of a bull, the face of a human, they had the, the paws of a lion, and then they had the wings of an eagle. Yeah, there you go. There's all the four creatures mushed together. They were throne guardians. They were to, to protect you from the wrath of that particular God. They ripped that off of the God of Israel because the God of Israel had the four living creatures that was basically these Lamassu, but they had bodies of a human. They had the face of a man. They had wings like an eagle. They had a face of an eagle, but a face of an ox and a face of a lion. What if, what if we, we discover the Ark of the Covenant? And what if we see that this Ark of a Covenant, these cherubim have four faces on it? All it's saying is that the human faces on the cherubim are facing each other in towards the ark. So maybe there's three other faces, north, south, east, and west, that are, you know, that are on these cherubim. I don't know. That's just an educated guess of mine. Uh, I haven't found anybody that, you know, has said the same thing in commentaries or what have you. But anyway, so moving on, that was just a little extra here, not in my notes or anything like that. But what we just read was that there was a command from God to Moses to the people to make him a sanctuary so that he can dwell among us, which means we have the ability to create holy spaces. We have the ability to create set apart holy spaces that God can come in and dwell. A holy, clean place where God could reside and dwell among us. We've built churches, we've built synagogues, and we've dedicated them to God. We've been in such services where we felt the presence of God and felt the Holy Spirit. Some of us may even seen a blue haze represents the Shekinah of God. We may have seen God manifest in some sort of way like that. But we create these spaces by our intentions. And up to this point, all Israel was divided, bickering among themselves, complaining. There was many coup d'etats or, or coup attempts against Moses and his leadership. If they weren't complaining about the food, they were complaining about the water. If they weren't complaining about that, they were complaining about lawsuits and little squabbles, uh, you know, towards each other. And they would bring these to Moses. And all through the day and most of the night, Moses would be judging these cases and, 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 and you know, separating, you know, enemies. And, and his father-in-law said, this isn't good. you got to have other people to help carry the burden. 
You know, so people were bickering and complaining. They were wanting to go back to Egypt. They weren't missing the slavery, but they were missing the food, the availability of the food that they had there and, and the familiarity and the comfort that they had with the familiar. And they couldn't understand that this freedom they had was so much better. And then you had people that were jealous of Moses' authority. Well, who made you? Who died and made you king of the people, you know? And, you know, we're Levites too. We're your relatives. Why, you know, we're equal leaders as you. And they were have contests to see who was the real leader. And so all this was happening. What a miserable, miserable journey that must have been on the outset or on the onset. I mean, my goodness. I mean, so this up to this point, all of Israel was divided, bickering, complaining amongst themselves, fighting against each other. It was the tabernacle that united the people and brought peace and intimacy with God. It was it was this just shows that we as a people, yes, we're individuals, but if we don't have a banner to rally around, we don't have a cause to to rally to that we're going to be doing our own thing and we're going to be fighting and bickering and we're going to be jockeying for position. But if we had one cause to rally around, one thing that would unite us, then we could all take our own gifts, talents, resources. Not everybody contributed the same thing to the tabernacle. Some, some contributed gold, some silver, some linen, some wool, some animal skins, some wood. You know, But everybody had a part to play. And, everybody, and, and some people did the weaving and did the construction work. There were two guys that were artisans and, and, and you know, uh, uh, artists, and they're the ones who, who designed and made the furnishings. There's a legend that when God uh, gave him the patterns of what the ark is to look like and, and what the table of showbread is to look like, he understood it all but the menorah. He's like, God, you've explained it to me 20 ways from Sunday, and I still don't get what this thing looks like. Well, that's okay, because Aholabob and, and Bezaliel know exactly what I'm talking about. They're the ones who are going to make it. I'm telling you to tell them to make it. And when Moses says, look, I don't understand this, but this is the way God wants it. Oh, yeah, easy peasy. You know, and they were able to make it. You know, so everybody used their gifts and their talents and, and, and contributed different things, which is great, which means, you know, there was, there was no contribution too big, no contribution too small. All of it was used. Every single bit of it was used. And matter of fact, they actually had more than they needed. I wish we had that problem today in good causes, as we had more than we needed. But people are just so, they jealously guard their bank account. It's like when there's a need, usually it comes from the wallet. That's just the easiest way to take care of it. Okay, well, I may not have sheep and goats, and I may not have skins, and I may not have gold and silver, but I got money. You can buy what you need. And then we just jealously guard our wallet, you know, like that money's ours anyway. And it's not. Because the scripture says, whether you eat or drink, whatsoever you do, meaning work, meaning buying a home, meaning buying a car, whatever you do, do unto the Lord. Do it for Him. That car you drive is for His goals and His purpose and His ministry. The house you live in is for His goals, His purpose, His ministry. They're not ours. They're on loan. We are using them for vehicles of His glory. So why are we so... Uh, you know, uptight about our coin purse. But, um, you know, actually, like I said, Israel had the problem of, um, they actually had too much. And I want to read to you from uh, Exodus chapter 36, verses 2 through 7. It says, Then Moses called Bezaliel and Aholabob, and all the wise-hearted men in whose minds Adonai had set wisdom, along with everyone whose heart stirred him up to come and do the work. They received from Moses the entire offering 
that B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, had brought for the work of the service of the sanctuary to build it. They just kept bringing gold. They just kept bringing silver. They kept bringing animal skins. They kept bringing wood. They kept bringing all these materials. They brought free will offerings. Nobody twisted their arm. Nobody held a gun to their head. Nobody said, uh, you know, you're going to have to pay a fine if you don't bring something to this work of the tabernacle. No. It says, uh, they received from Moses the entire offering that B'nai Israel had brought for the work of the, of the service of the sanctuary to build it. They brought freewill offerings to him morning and afternoon. Then all the skilled men who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came one by one from the work he was doing. So this just wasn't one guy saying, whoa, ho, hold it, Moses. We got enough. That's enough already. I mean, we got more than we need. No, it wasn't just one person. They said every person doing the work. So the people that were weaving, the people that were forging, the people that were, that, that, that were uh, carving, whatever, says, then all the skilled men who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came one by one from the work he was doing. So the separate different types of work, whether it be forging or whether it be, you know, digging post holes and putting in the post, whatever, from the work that he was doing. And they said to Moses, the people are bringing much more than enough for the work of this construction that Adonai has commanded us to be done. So Moses gave an order. They proclaimed it through all the camp saying, let neither man nor woman make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing more. The work material they had was sufficient for all the work with much left over. I wish we had that problem today. And if we truly believed in the cause that God has called us to, which is evangelism, which is winning lost souls to Messiah Yeshua, we should give uninhibitedly, unrestrainedly. We should do whatever we can, not just our giving of our wallets, giving of our money, but giving of our time, our talents, our resources. You know, can I sing at an evangelistic crusade? Can I do some maybe drama? Can I, you know, uh, make a video or can I make a song or can I, you know, share my testimony or, you know, can I go on a mission trip? All these different things that we could use, not just our money. That's just a cop out. That's just an easy thing to do. You know, really, if you think about it, we give in such a way that we don't even feel it. We felt it when we literally had to take our hands, reach in our back pocket, pull out our wallet, open it up, and th thumb through the bills and decide which bill we were going to put in the offering plate. Now, we just open up our phone and just press a button, and it's automatically put into the account of the church or the synagogue or whatever. We don't even feel the pinch or the pain of giving financially anymore because it's so easy to do. We just press a button, and that's it. Oh, easy. Okay, God, yeah, I did my good deed for the day, right? So if we only had that problem. Now, we see that everybody played a role and everybody played a part. This reminds me of, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul says, hey, you're all different parts of the body, but you're all part of the same body. You all work together. The finger cooperates with the thumb, and the ear cooperates with the eye, and the foot cooperates with the hand. They all cooperate and work together to make it one body, to make it one fine oiled working machine. And I've always, you know, thought if, if Christ is the head, Messiah is the head, and we are the body of Christ, have we made Christ a cripple? Have we made Christ an invalid? Because we refuse to work with each other. We refuse to cooperate. 
Because if the foot says to the hand, oh, I don't need you, and the ear, you know, if and everybody was an eye, where would the hearing be? And, you know, all this confusion. I mean, just think of the monstrosity the body of Christ must look like in the spirit, because we're all fighting against each other. You know, we, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's just crazy to think about. But it reminds me of that, that if we all just kind of were satisfied with the calling that God has placed upon us and the gifts and talents that God has given us and not try to encroach on anybody else's territory, not to try to do more or less than we're supposed to do, but do exactly what God has called us to do, how things would just come together and work together and we would all be happy under that one banner. Because the last words of Messiah before he left earth is, go into all the world and give them this good news. And that is the banner that we should be rallying around. Because that is the tabernacle that we are building. We can't see this tabernacle. We can't see the skins and the linens and the wools and the gold and the silver. But Peter says that we are living stones. And we are fitted together to create this, this living temple. And no wonder in Revelation it talks about that there's not going to be a temple. There's not going to be a tabernacle. God himself is going to be that temple, that tabernacle. We won't need a tabernacle or a temple. But that tabernacle and temple was, was a rallying banner and a rallying cry to get Israel to unite and to come together and to cooperate and to gel as a nation. And as, Because that's what they were. They were 12 separate tribes coming out of Egypt. And once they crossed the Red Sea, representing the birth canal, they were birthed as a nation. And as a child, you have to learn to walk, to talk, to eat, all this kind of stuff. And the Lord was doing that. And once they built this tabernacle, they were finally gelling and, and uniting. They were becoming 12 tribes or 12 states, if you will, but one nation under God. You know, we think of the 13 colonies. Well, really, there were 13 tribes if you count Levi. Because, you know, Ephraim and Manasseh were Joseph's tribe. So if you count them all together, there was 13. So it's kind of like the 13 colonies of the United States. You unite them together, they're one nation under God. They all had different personalities, different gifts and talents, different things that they did within the nation of Israel. But they were all necessary and they were all needed. Gad was warriors. Dan was judges. Judah was kings. Levi's were priests. Issachar were laborers. You know, Naphtali was bakers. You needed everybody to come together to make one nation function. But everybody had their gifts and talents, and not one tribe tried to encroach on the other. Well, I can do this better than you. No, you weren't called to that. And it reminds me of when I went to Nigeria and was ministering among the Ibu people. The Chazan, which a Chazan is the one who, who, who chants the Torah in Hebrew. He wanted me to teach him how to chant in Hebrew the way the Ashkenazic Jews do. I said, no. He seemed hurt. Why? I said, because you're not Judah. You're Gad. You're Ibu. I said, I love the way you chant Torah. It's different than the Ashkenazic, and I like it that way. Because you've got to be Gad. You can't be Judah. You're not Judah. You're Gad. So be Gad. I said, you know, because that chanting in the Hebrew had the African accent and the African flavor to it, and it was beautiful. And i like, I wouldn't change that. So we shouldn't encroach on others' territory. But we see that the people were involved in building the tabernacle, right? Everybody was involved, and everybody didn't want to stop. They were having so much fun. They were enjoying giving. It was better to give than to receive because what they were going to receive was better than what they were giving. They were giving of material things, but they were going to receive the presence of God as a result, which is a greater deal, you know? It's like giving somebody pebbles, and they give you gold back. For those pebbles. I mean, that's the kind of deal that God made with Israel. So our half Torah portion is in 1 Kings chapter 6. And I wonder if maybe you can 
like see what the difference was here. So here in Exodus chapter 25, it's the tabernacle. It's a portable tent that you could erect and tear down and take on a journey, whereas the temple was a permanent edifice, a permanent structure. And so we see in Exodus chapter 25, all the people were involved. But in 1 Kings chapter 6, it says, Now it came to pass, 480 years after the children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build Adonai's house. He, Solomon, began to build Adonai's house. People weren't involved. He didn't say, hey guys, I need your help. Hey, why don't you contribute to this cause? No. He had all the materials. He had all the goods. His dad was saving it years before he came to the throne. And it was Solomon, look at me, look at what I can do. Look what I'm doing for the Lord. Look at the temple that I built for the Lord. So um, now the house that King Solomon had built for Adonai, see, the people weren't involved. Israel wasn't involved. This was all Solomon's project. Now the house that King Solomon built for Adonai was 60 cubits long, and it goes into all this detail about, about the temple, about how it looked and how it was made. But the point is, that's the difference. The people weren't involved. He didn't say, I'm going to give everybody a chance to participate. I'm going to give everybody a chance to give what they, whatever they want to give, whatever the Lord has laid on your heart to give for the building of this temple. Guess what he did instead? He conscripted the work. In other words, it was forced labor. I'm the king. What I say goes. What I say is law. You have to do what I say. So you're going to spend so many months building and so many months off until this thing is complete. Nobody had a choice in the matter. They were forced to do that. I don't know about you. I don't like to be forced to do anything. I naturally want to rebel when I'm forced to do something I don't want to do or that goes against my conscience, especially if it's going to benefit somebody else and not benefit me or benefit everybody else as a result. And so there's the difference. The people gave willingly in Exodus, and they gave begrudgingly because they had to in 1 Kings chapter 6. Now, I want to read a, a scripture passage from Rav Shul, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Don't you know that you are God's temple, and that the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, dwells among you? What was the purpose of building a tabernacle? So that the Lord's presence can dwell among them. But now Paul's saying, look, you know, the, 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 the tabernacle has been folded up. The tabernacle has been, you know, put away. The temple's still standing, but it won't be standing for long. It's going to be destroyed. Even Yeshua said it would. He said, but don't you know that you are God's temple, that the Ruach Elohim, that the Spirit of God dwells within you. Our hearts are like the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is God's throne on earth. What was inside the Ark of the Covenant? God's laws, God's word. And what does it say? To hide God's word in our heart that we may not sin against him. So our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Shekinah that dwelt between the cherubim now lives inside our hearts. I think that's, I think that's a beautiful thing. And um, second, or, uh, first Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, I already kind of alluded to this, but 1 Peter chapter 2, 
starting with the first one, it says, So get rid of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all Lashon Hara, evil tongue, evil speaking, gossip and slander. This sounds like the children of Israel before they had the uh, opportunity to participate in building the tabernacle. They, they had malice against each other. They were deceiving each other. They were hypocritical. They were envious of each other. They were gossiping and slandering, jockeying for power and position and control. And in verse 2, it says, As newborn babes long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow towards salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, a living stone. You come to him as a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. You were also as living stones and are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. What are the spiritual sacrifices? Romans 12, 1 and true. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God, which is holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service or reasonable act of worship. A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifice according uh, or acceptable to God through Messiah Yeshua. So we don't need a church. We don't need a synagogue or building to be unified and to worship God. All we need is each other, no matter where we meet. Some of the most holiest places on earth where the Spirit of God was felt, where the Spirit of God manifest and showed up, was in a dirty, rat, lice-infested dungeon that probably reeked of feces and urine where Paul and Silas were in the stocks. Their backs were ripped open raw from the beatings that were wrongfully given to them, especially because one of them was a Roman citizen, Paul. But yet they started singing praises to God in that fetid, dark, dank, damp, lice, rat-infested, smelly, dank cell. And Elvis ain't got nothing on the jailhouse rock. That was the first jailhouse rock. God showed up, the house shook, the gates, the, the prison doors came open, and the guard was about to kill himself because he thought he was going to lose all his prisoners. And Paul said, don't, don't do yourself any harm. We're all here. We're all here. So it doesn't matter where you are. Corey Tin Boom, one of the survivors of the Holocaust, said that God showed up in their barracks that were lice infested, and God sent the lice. You're thinking, oh, gee, thanks, God. That's a great gift, lice. But you know what? That lice served a purpose. The Nazi guards were going to the other barracks and raping the women. They didn't want to go into there because they didn't want to get lice. So those women were left unmolested, even though they had the itch. <laughs> because of the lice, the Spirit of God showed up because they studied the scriptures and they praised God in those barracks, and the Nazis left them alone. <laughs> wow. So we don't need a church or a synagogue or a building to be unified and worship God. We just need each other. Even in the world to come, a building will not be important. Because in Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 through 27, Yochanan, John, the revelator, he said, I saw no temple in her, for its temple is Adonai Elohei Zevaot, the Lord God of righteousness, the Lord God of hosts. I saw no temple in her, for the temple is Adonai Elohei Zevaot and the Lamb. Thinking of the Lamb, one of the things that kind of cracked me up in Revelation is that 
people were hiding from the wrath of the lamb. Okay, I, I could see a wrath of a lion, but how is a lamb intimidating and scary? But it says the wrath of the lamb. So there's no temple. For God and the Lamb is temple enough, and the city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it. So apparently, there's still going to be a sun and moon. We're just not going to be able, just like we can't see the moon in the daytime because the sun outshines the moon most of the time. God's glory, his light is going to outshine the sun, outshine the moon. We're not going to even need it or see it. For the glory of God lights it up, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory into it. Its gates shall never be shut uh, by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring into into the glory and honor of the nations, and nothing unholy shall ever enter it, nor anyone doing what is detestable or false, but only those written in the book of life. So it's our unity as a temple of living stones and the body of Christ that will win over the world. The biggest excuse I get from people that they don't want to accept Yeshua, they don't want to have anything to do with organized religion, Christianity, Messianic Judaism, whatever you want to call it, is because you guys got the same book, you can't even agree on what's in it. You guys got all these different churches, all these different denominations. You got Methodist and Anglican and Pentecostal and Messianic, and you're all fighting and bickering. You can in John chapter 17. This is the whole key. This is the whole secret. Just as we have to have unity, the children of Israel had to have unity and rally together to build the tabernacle so God could dwell among them. We, as the body of Christ, is not going to have the Spirit of God dwell among us until we are unified. We don't have to agree on all the same things. We don't have to believe all the same things. Doesn't matter what label is on the outside of our church door or on our homes. As long as we believe the cardinal, unquestionable, undeniable, uncompromising doctrines, the the, the core beliefs of, of, of our faith, as long as we can agree on those, it doesn't matter what we call ourselves. But in John chapter 17, one of my favorite passages in the Gospels, because this is Yeshua's prayer. This is Yeshua praying before he goes to the cross. So in John chapter 17, beginning with verse 20, Yeshua, on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, his disciples sleeping in a food coma from all the food from Passover, tired from eating and singing and just enjoying Passover, Yeshua praying in his sweat becoming as great drops of blood. He says, I pray not on behalf of these only, my 12, my disciples, my students, but also for those who believe in me through their message. I love this verse because this verse, I'm in the Bible. I may not be mentioned by name, but I'm in here. Because he's saying, Jesus is praying for me. Yeshua is praying for me. He prayed for me and you 2,000 years ago in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, I pray not on behalf of these only, my current students, but for those who will believe in me through their message. It's because of reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul that I believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. I came to faith in their testimony and their documents and in their words. 
but also for those who believe in me through their message. That's us right here, right now, that they may all be one. That they may all be one. And you know what? We can be one and still be our individual selves. I mean, my finger is not my toe, but it's still one with my body. My nose and my elbow are two different parts, but it's the same body. That's all one. It's one in unity, one in plurality. Just like the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all in, you know, one divine essence. They're, they're one in unity. That they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. So also may they be one in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. Nobody is going to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Yeshua is the Messiah, until his children, his body, gets their act together and start being unified despite our denominational labels. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. Perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you loved me. Unity. That's what Taruma, our Torah portion, is all about this week. Unity. Being one. Being united. Reveling in our individuality because we have different gifts, different talents, different resources, but bringing them together. You know, there's this old story about a poor community, and they hardly had, they couldn't make meals for themselves. So somebody brought, you know, uh, uh, somebody brought a leg of lamb, and somebody brought some leeks, and somebody brought some potatoes, and somebody brought some green beans, and somebody brought this. And by themselves, it's not much of a meal, but you bring it all together, and you have yourself a stew that people can enjoy and eat off, and everybody contributed to it. Now, that's a potluck. So it's our unity as believers, choosing not to argue and bicker over these peripheral side issues that really don't matter in the light of eternal things, but agreeing that Yeshua is the Messiah, that God is the only one true God, that the Bible is infallible and perfect in his word, that the Holy Spirit is our teacher and lives inside us, that the only way to, to salvation is through Christ. Those are the cardinal things that we can all agree on. So let's just forget about everything else and unify and work towards the same goal. And it's then and only then that the world will know that Yahweh is the God of the universe, that Yeshua is his Messiah, his anointed one, his, the soon incoming king, that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and the word is his word. It's the word of God. The Bible is truth. All right. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. This is probably the hardest lesson to apply. This is probably the hardest passage in the Torah to keep. Thou shalt not kill. Okay, kind of pretty easy. I can do that. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay, uh, maybe a little harder, but I can do that too. But to be unified, to be one, not to fight, not to bicker, not to have malice, to be unified. Oh, that's hard, Lord. That's hard. Father, help us to love our neighbor as ourself. If we do that, we're automatically going to be unified. The two greatest commandments sum up the 10, and the 10 sum up the 613. If we love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if we love you, we're not going to want to bicker or fight or hurt each other. 
And if we love our neighbor as ourselves, doing unto others as we would want them to do to us, then we're going to create and foster that unity. And if we come together at the table to fellowship and to worship together and get to know one another, we're going to see what specialties and talents and gifts each other has. And we can say, hey, why don't you help me with this and I'll help you with that. And together we'll reach the world for Messiah Yeshua. So Lord, help us to, we're the only ones who can answer your prayer in the garden. For 2,000 years, your prayer has been unanswered. Your son's prayer in the garden before the crucifixion has been unanswered. We're the only ones who can answer that prayer. Help us to get our act together and to be unified and not to care what labels we decide to call ourselves. Well, I'm a Christian. I'm a Messianic. I'm a Methodist. I'm an Angle. I'm this. I'm that. No, I'm a believer. I'm a follower of Messiah Yeshua. That's all that we need to know. As long as we can agree on the cardinal things, every other thing, you know, this eternal security, Arminianism, Calvinism, pre, post, ah, tribulation, this, that, and the other, it doesn't matter. Help us to come together so that we could be living stones to build your tabernacle here on earth so that you may come and dwell among us so that people will know there is a God in Israel. There is a God of this universe and Yeshua Messiah is his son, is the anointed one, is the ruler and future king, coming king. And that your word is the truth and that your Holy Spirit is our teacher and is our guide. Lord, we love you and we praise you. So we end with Yevarakaka Adonai Vishmaraka, Yer Adonai Panavalecha Vechuneka, Yesa Adonai Panavalecha Veyasem Lakashalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Bashem Yeshua Moshinu. In the name of Yeshua our Messiah, we pray. Amen.